Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Claire Wilnisty, who is an assistant professor of history at Austin College. We'll be discussing her book, A Different Manifest Destiny, U.S. Southern Identity and Citizenship in 19th Century South America, which is out this year from the University of Nebraska Press. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Claire. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today, and full disclosure for our audience, Claire and I used to work together at Angelo State University. Um, So I've been hearing a little bit about this book along the way during its progress, and I've been excited to read it in print and to talk to you today about it. Well, thank you. So to get started, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in history generally and why you decided to become a historian? Yeah, of course. So... Granted, I'm biased, but I think that history is relevant to everyone because history is just people and their stories. And so from an early age, I would love to read about people and read about the stories that they told about themselves. And so I wanted to be a historian in order to just keep studying and keep reading about these different stories. Wonderful. Well, I share your bias on on that front. Um, In the story that the stories that you've told in this book are really fascinating. And I'm wondering how you came to this particular topic. Yeah, so a very, 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 very early version of this particular project was actually my undergraduate um, senior thesis. And I started that project looking at filibusters. So uh, the members of private armies that went down into Central America. And so I started there because when I first read that as a student, it blew my mind. I could not believe that I was reading about these kinds of stories. And so over the next couple of years, I expanded that scope and started looking at the stories of a wider range of people that went down to Central America and then down to South America. Okay. So perhaps I realize as we start uh, talking about these individual groups, it would be helpful for our listeners to take a minute and back out a little bit and talk about your book as a whole uh, and really who the people are that you're talking about here. So your book is talking about Southerners in, in the United States in the antebellum period and leading into the Civil War and during the Civil War and talking about the ways in which they are looking or actually going to South America. So could you give us just kind of a big picture, the 30,000 foot version of what's happening here? Yeah. So as you mentioned, we are in the antebellum period. And so I'm especially interested in individuals in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, and into the 60s, a little bit into the 70s. And so these are folks who identified as Southerners, depending on the specific years we're looking at, they also identify as Confederates. And so 
they are very nervous. They are very worried that their way of life, as in pro-slavery agriculture and a little bit of pro-slavery industrialization is being threatened by Northerners, by other interest groups. And so the huge, broad uh, view of these individuals is that they are looking to expand in order to spread their interest in slavery, in um, industrialized slavery. And so three groups of people that I look at are filibusters, as I mentioned before. I also look at commercial expansionists, so people who want to expand the South expand the future confederacy through commercial connections. And then the last group of people I look at are immigrants. So people who, as you mentioned, physically leave the former confederacy and move to places in South America. The largest group of them move to Brazil. And so Brazil becomes kind of my end case study of this work. Okay. So I want to talk about each of those groups a little bit in turn. But before we get there, your average student of American history who's been a, even in a survey class probably is well aware that some of the debates about slavery and, and U.S. identity and those kinds of things in this period uh, get particularly heated when it comes to Western expansion. And usually when we talk about expansion um, during this period, we're talking about Western expansion. So could you tell us just a little bit about, you know, your book is looking in a different direction Um both what's going on here, why they look to South America, and also how we as Americans or students of history or whoever we are uh, might rethink that tendency to, to only look West. Yeah. So when I talk about expansion in this general time period, I think John Gast's um, really famous picture of the woman with the light and the telegraph and all the people moving west is kind of the standard dominant narrative of expansion to the point where whenever someone says, for the most part, manifest destiny, it means westward expansion, as you mentioned. It also assumes this singular idea and narrative of what Manifest Destiny expansion looks like as lived experiences. And so those assumptions are really what I'm trying to pull apart a little bit. And so when we look at what Manifest Destiny expansion is like as lived experiences, it is these individuals doing things like trading with ports like Rio de Janeiro, which is that southward focus. It is individuals funding steamship routes that go between places like Galveston and again, Rio de Janeiro, which is also that southward focus. So to kind of rephrase that a little bit, it's expansion southward because of these economic opportunities that these individuals are pursuing. They just happen to be south of where they're living instead of west of where they're living. And so by studying that, I hope to pull apart what Manifest Destiny actually looked like on a day-to-day basis. Okay, great. So I want to talk a little bit about those three groups uh, before we come back to some of the questions of what this means for 
Southerners and how this affects their ideas about their identity and about slavery as a whole. Now, the three groups that you mentioned, I would imagine, are uh, who they are, or, or at least what they're trying to do, are relatively self-explanatory for the commercial expansionists and the immigrants. But could you take a minute to define filibusters, since I imagine most people uh, think of that term uh in a different context to mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. So filibusters, in, and there's a couple of decades that they're really active in, but 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, refer to humans, first of all. Um, they're <laughs> members of private armies. So they espouse, they agree with militant expansion. The most famous filibuster is, of course, William Walker. Um, He's the first person that I really studied in the context of this project. And he raised armies of thousands of people, like 1,000, 2,000 people. And they literally straight up invaded places like Nicaragua, places like Honduras, or at least modern Nicaragua and Honduras. Annexed it militarily, defended it militarily, and set up localized, what they would call, countries in those regions. Hmm. And so can you tell us a little more about who William Walker was? Sure. Um, He was... He was trained in medicine. He grew up in Nashville. He was going to be a doctor, but decided that was boring. (laughs) Decided that he was going to go out to California. He was in California for a while. Um, he decided that that was boring as well. So the first place that he invaded is actually Sonora. And so he had, he had a couple of men out there. They were wandering around, decided the desert was not for them. They got defeated there, but he tries again and his next target is Nicaragua. And so he says he is a general, which is completely false. He (laughs) Uh, gives himself those credentials. He writes a bill book. It's about 500 pages outlining how the South needs to support him because he's going to spread slavery, support slavery in Nicaragua, which in turn will help a pro-slavery empire expand out of the South down southward. He's not successful, spoiler alert, because he ends up getting executed by the Hondurans. So why does he pick Nicaragua? Excellent question. So one of the things that he was hoping to do was create an immigration stopover, for lack of a better word, between the eastern coast of the United States and the western coast of the United States because we have the larger context of the gold rush He was a part of that, or at least kind of on the edges of that. And so he knows that people are interested in moving between the two coasts of the United States. And so he hopes that if he's in Nicaragua, he can do a couple of things. One of his main goals is to make a ton of money by charging those immigrants to cross over Nicaragua instead of having to sail all the way around South America. So that's one of his main economic motivations. He's also a straight up racist. And so he thinks that he can come in and basically brainwash all of the local indigenous people, all of the people of color, and get them to do whatever he wants them to do. And so he thinks it's going to be really easy. 
He also puts forth ideas about regenerating, that's one of his favorite verbs, regenerating systems of slavery in South America and bringing in um, slave overseers to kind of restructure the slave system in Nicaragua as a part of bolstering and setting up this expansive slave system in Nicaragua. He also argues that Nicaragua can be a stepping stone for a restructured and legalized international slave trade. So that's kind of another piece of his argument for picking Nicaragua. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, uh, because of the gold rush, there's a lot of people who have some similar ideas about uh, having a nice crossover there. Of course, many decades later, the Panama Canal will come to be actually bringing that crossover to fruition in a in a more. yeah, in an easier manner for travel, so to speak, by going through the canal. Um, but he's one of many people who has this idea. But then he's also putting it together with these ideas about slavery. Uh, what is you've kind of given us an idea of what he wants? Is is he or others like him? Are they really motivated by this idea of wanting this expanded slavery? Is there some sort of um, kind of mutual interest that's going on here? What's what's kind of happening with uh, these views about slavery? Like, what what's the end game here, so to speak? Yeah, so it does depend on who you ask, which is true of a lot of instances in history, I know. Right. Um, so if you ask average dude in his army, chances are the average person in his army is not running around creating grandiose ideas about a slave empire or expanding some kind of slave power. Chances are they are, the individuals in his armies are straight up broke. They don't have any other options. Um, For example, New Orleans became, becomes kind of notorious for recruiters, Walker's recruiters, waiting for recent immigrants to come in, kind of scooping them up and shoving them into Walker's army. So for the most part, your average person in his army is not advocating for this larger slave empire. They are fighting because they get a paycheck, they get meal, and they were promised land in Nicaragua. He does woo potentially wealthy financial backers in some of the larger cities in the future confederacy. And so they are thinking, okay, if we finance Walker, if we support Walker, then we can contribute to this larger slave empire. So there is some rhetoric there. There are some like um, dining and whining situations where they try to get support, lavish parties, things like that. Um, So that is a hope. That is one of the main reasons why he writes this big old book that's about 500 pages because he is consciously trying to woo the support financial support of these wealthy plantation owners. For the most part, that doesn't actually happen because, again, he is executed. But that is the hope. That that puts an end to it there. Um, So one thing that I found particularly interesting, not just in this chapter, but I think, you know, we can have this 
conversation, particularly about this chapter, and some of our listeners might uh, pick up the book to read some of the other chapters. But one thing I found particularly interesting is you talk about how opponents link credence to some of the claims. Uh, On the one hand, of course, you know, a few thousand people raising an army of that is a lot. That's a big deal. But on the other hand, uh, it seems like some of these goals are tenuous in some ways. And yet having uh, the opponents sort of make those claims more realistic in some ways. Could you talk a little bit about what's going on there, what the opponents are doing and how they are lending credence to uh, some of the filibusters claims? Yeah. So one of the sticky is parts of this project was separating reality from rhetoric. And of course, you can have a whole argument about um, how much of reality is rhetoric, rhetoric, reality, and that whole uh, relationship there. But I think in some ways, the rhetorical, psychological impacts of these actions lend them some of their greatest significances. So, for example, some folks would link Walker's actions in Nicaragua with um, the fighting the disputes in the Kansas-Nebraska region, saying that because slave power, so-called slave power, didn't get everything that they wanted in the Midwest, then they're going to go ahead and go to Central America. So connecting those two geographic spaces rhetorically in ways that I don't know that people today necessarily put them together is really interesting to think about. And so... Because we see these connections rhetorically between Candace, Nebraska, and Nicaragua so, 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 so many times, I think we have to really acknowledge that people believed that Walker or a Walker-like figure could indeed keep expanding pro-slavery interests southward. Mm-hmm. Slightly Differently, I think some other agents and interests that are really intriguing to think about are European powers. Um, You alluded to the fact earlier that eventually we get the canal through Panama. And of course, as many of us know, uh, France is very interested in that region as well. Well, France had also set up settlements in Nicaragua as did England. And so seeing how Southern representatives and European representatives were both setting themselves up in this zero-sum game over Central American resources and transportation networks is also something that I found really interesting to think about. Yeah, I found your discussion of of Europe and how kind of the the ideas of Europe and um, these various figures setting themselves up against Europe, how incredibly important that was. Also extremely interesting, um, especially when one's thinking about this time period, because the United States as a whole is thinking about some of these same questions. What is the United States' role in Central and South America? How does that relate to uh, the the European colonies that are already or still there, some of which are coming not to be there anymore. There's some countries that are becoming independent, but that's a very slow moving process. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. So how, I mean, how are they thinking of themselves 
um, either the filibusters or, or the others for that matter, but uh, in relating to Europe, especially in, in some of those rhetorical ways that you mentioned. Yeah. So one thing that they're really grappling with is definitions of quote unquote proper civilization. How can they, as in Southerners, create a lasting civilization, a strong and successful civilization, which they would define as pro-slavery civilization. And in setting up those kinds of definitions, they often use European colonies or empires as foils. So a lot of the language... uh, filibuster and southern language is we are not going to fall into decay like these European empires and that is where their references to independence movements and South American turmoil comes in I think um, southerners saying because we can lay this foundation for a different civilization a better civilization that we won't have to deal with some of the crumbliness that they saw in the European empires. Right. One of the things things that's kind of interesting about that is, though a little bit later than your book, is a lot of this rhetoric comes back or is extremely similar to the United States' rhetoric when we do become an empire in the Philippines and places like that a little bit later in the 19th century. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I think it's this bridge between early, early, early versions of the Monroe Doctrine and straight up imperialism and banana republics and all of that. So it's that period in between those two signposts, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with this particular Southern focus there. So... The commercial expansionists are another big, important uh, yes. group within your um, book. Um, and then finally, the immigrants. And I thought maybe we'd skip to the immigrants for, for a few minutes anyway. Uh, I'd, uh, there's plenty more that people can read the details uh, in the book. So to talk a little bit about why Brazil and what's happening there. Because I think in, in some ways, if I were guessing, and certainly my own experience when I first heard about your project, this is in some ways perhaps the most surprising or least known uh, to kind of your average American, I would guess. Maybe I'm wrong, but that would be my guess. Uh, so why do people pick Brazil and what are they doing there? Yeah, I do think, I will say, um, I do think that this story is becoming a little bit well more well-known. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, the New York Times did a huge page spread on it the week after I published this book. So, of course, they did. Excellent. <laughs> um, so, um, but good for sharing these stories, telling the stories. So, Southerners are picking Brazil because of multiple reasons. The number one reason that immigration recruiters love to publish, love to emphasize, is that Brazil, of course, hasn't officially abolished slavery. It hasn't done this or doesn't do this until 1888. So that in and of itself is a huge draw for some 
former Confederates or Confederates in name that have lost the Civil War. It's recruiters saying, you can bring your slaves down to Brazil. You can buy slaves in Brazil. You don't have to worry about it there. Now, of course, the number of instances of Confederate, former Confederate immigrants being able to do that are few and far between. Personally, I've only found maybe five five references to slaves and former slaves moving to Brazil. And of course, you can debate or think about the degree of agency there. Um, but the promise of that is a really big deal for these immigrants. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, and it's another main theme of this book, is that a lot of Southerners are already familiar with Brazil. It's not like it's this far off distant land that they have zero connections to. A lot of them are parts of families that had relatives or connections to the filibuster expeditions, for example. They are also members of merchant families, commercial families that have business branches in Brazil. We also, of course, have the international slave trade with multiple ports in Brazil. When the international slave trade is outlawed in the United States, we still have continued uh, smuggling routes and things like that, especially through Texas. And so people who decide to immigrate to Brazil after the Civil War often are familiar with it already, at least by proxy. And so it's not completely unheard of that they would go there later on. Mm -hmm. And so how does it go when they get there? Yeah. Uh, generally not too well. Um, on the one hand, the first couple of years aren't too bad in terms of Sometimes, if you're lucky, you'll get a specific contract from a member or a representative of the Brazilian government. And I think that is an important piece of the story, too, is that sometimes Brazilian officials would consciously draw Southern immigrants in. And so if you got that contract, that piece of paper, then you were entitled to an initial Brazilian subsidy, for lack of a better word. So they might pay for your ship passage to Brazil as long as you promise to work a piece of land or stay in Brazil for a certain amount of time. So that could be a good thing to get you started. Um, it also depended on what your training was and what your profession was. So when we're thinking about family members that knew other family members, a lot of times it was through medical networks. And so there's a surprising number of Confederate dentists. So there's a whole bunch of dentists that do pretty well because they're able to corner that particular market. Sidebar, but I think Confederate dentists in the Amazon rainforest is like some kind of uh, movie or horror horror movie or something. Like that just has to happen. Um, but For sure. If you're a Confederate dentist, then you do okay, generally speaking. But after a couple of years, there is a rather large return migration to southern states because... They aren't able to overcome a lot of initial difficulties. Um, language being a huge one. 
A lot of them specifically cite the language as one of the reasons why they return. And then quite a few others of them move on to a different place or they have family members that kind of go back and forth between the former Confederacy and various cities in Brazil. So that's another aspect of their lives too, if they're really rooted in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that those language of civilization and um, uh, expertise or conversely, I suppose, racism uh, come up in these areas as well. Because you mentioned this idea of bringing medical knowledge is something that they are trying to suggest is something that they're bringing to other places and sort of a, a value add, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part yeah. of their, their civilizing mission, so to speak. Yeah. Um, they are going to Brazil, going to South America. They're moving to another country, but in a way that's not dissimilar from some Western migration or other aspects of migration. They're still thinking about themselves as Southerners, as Americans or as Confederates. Um, how does this fit into their kind of conception of their identity in that way? Yeah, so obviously they're dealing with a lot, and I don't mean to be trite in that statement, um, but when on paper, at least, they lose the Civil War, they have to put together the pieces of who they are and what it is they can latch on to, they can promote as central parts of their identity. They come up with a couple of things that they really focus on as aspects of Southernness. Um, providing for family is a huge, huge piece of that. There are lots and lots of letters that come back from the male heads of households that are very concerned about providing for their families to the point where they actually create several periodicals and newspapers in Brazil where they can share with other confederado, um, so Southern immigrant confederados in Brazil, sharing with each other how they can provide for their families. So that's a key piece of it. You alluded to another key piece of it, and that is this expertise that they have, that they supposedly have greater access to a medical expertise or sometimes even agricultural expertise that they have more access to than Brazilians. They can then use this knowledge in their telling of the story, use this knowledge to restructure Brazil's agri agrarian economy make it better, and then by extension, the plan is they're going to prove to the rest of the world that this Southern knowledge of things like science and agriculture is going to expand Brazil's uh, economy by extension and prove themselves right, essentially. So that's another key piece of who they are as Southerners. What falls away, at least in the sources that I've studied, from these pieces of Southern identity are geographic location, which I think is interesting because a lot of these folks move back and forth between places like Texas, Georgia, and Brazil, mostly the port city of Rio de Janeiro, and they don't tie their identities to geographic location. 
The other thing that falls away from their self-identities as Southerners is military service, which I think is really interesting because there are other groups of former Confederate immigrants that go to places like Egypt, to go to places like Northern Mexico, and they hold on to that military part of their identity. But for the most part, they don't do that in Brazil to the point where in those contracts with the Brazilian government, they specifically say, you cannot draft us in any military capacity in your country. So that falls away. And it's replaced by things like providing for family, use of expertise. We also see, again, some of that kind of regeneration language, some of that make the surrounding better language. Hmm. That's really interesting. Is it evident at all why something like the military service would fall away in this context? Good question. Um I mean, perhaps a simplistic answer, but they lost. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I don't know that they would advertise that too much. And I don't know. To be completely self-serving, it wouldn't help them. It wouldn't get them anything in Brazil. As a point of contrast, whereas in Egypt, their military credentials could get them a position could get them a role in occupation and income. It could not do that for them in Brazil. Hmm. That's interesting, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so how widespread is this? What I mean, we talked a little bit about the numbers with the filibusters, but uh, kind of across the groups, I, I'm wondering, I guess, two parts, both since you've talked a little bit about the um, uh, overlap but also difference between rhetoric and kind of reality. How physically big are these groups of people who are actually involved? And then secondarily, how big of a deal is it in terms of publicity? Or, you know, of course, you can have someone who never leaves uh, Alabama or Mississippi or wherever and is still thinking about having some connection um, to these immigrants. So how how large is this movement? Excellent question. So it is really hard to get very definitive numbers on these folks because, of course, we have to know most of the time they don't have any kind of official papers or passports necessarily. They might not advertise the fact that they're leaving. And because of the the return migration, the number isn't always a steady number. But there are a couple of sources and things we can use to get a ballpark, granted a very wide ballpark, but we do have one, uh, anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000, which I know is a huge number range, but it is at least several thousand. On a more local level, some of the individual colonization contracts that get issued are for as many as 500 people. So we're looking at groups of 500 people or associated groups of 500 people. Sometimes they're from a single parish in Louisiana or they're from a single town in Texas. So we have a little bit of community migration going on 
there. So that's what I have in terms of numbers. In terms of impact, it has a pretty significant impact, especially if you are in charge or you are associated with reconstructing the South. We have a number of really important leaders in the South. Robert E. Lee is one of them who specifically tell people or urge people not to leave because he is concerned that these are human resources leaving the former Confederacy and so they're not going to be there to help build it up again. So that is a concern. That is a fear that a lot of the immigration recruiters have to overcome. Sometimes the people leaving have to justify why they're leaving. It kind of depends on the particular family. So it's not like it's universal Southern support for this immigration. But that also means, or it's one of the main reasons I think why they are so conscious about publicly articulating why they're leaving and what they plan on doing. They're a little bit on the defensive on that one, in that way. Hmm. Okay, great. Um, so we didn't talk quite as much about the commercial expansionist, but I was wondering if you wanted to tell us perhaps uh, what you found one of your most interesting individuals or kind of small stories or <laughs> details that you found um, that you might want to share. Sure. So first thing I wanted to say about this particular chapter is I think, or this group of people, these commercial expansionists, I think the most significant thing about them really unmoored from any specific action that they do is how they conceptualize expansion as independent from territorial acquisition. And so I think complicating what it means to expand the South is also really important to consider. So this commercial expansion that isn't tied to land. Mm -hmm. The kinds of commodities that they trade in are mostly coffee, which probably isn't a surprise to most people, given that it is Brazil. In fact, we see receipts for um, Rio coffee specifically in places like New Orleans, in places like Louisville, designating this as kind of a specialty commodity. There's also a heck of a lot of guano. And so I don't know if this is... Uh, I know, a particularly academically interesting story, but I felt so badly for this individual, so I have to share her story. So um, her name comes up in different different forms, but I'll call her Margaret. Um, she's the wife of a ship captain, and it is a guano ship captain. And so she's stuck on this little island uh, to the southeast, kind of off the coast of uh, the bottom of the Brazil that whole region, and she spends her day essentially counting guano ships. So I wanted to share her name because that is her life for several years. But what she ends up doing is she uses it to her, to her advantage because she knows that her letters on the steamships are often faster than the actual guano ships. And so what she's able to do is send her letters back to her family members in Virginia and let them know how many guano ships are coming so that they know how many... Um, I don't know, bags is the right word, but how many bags of guano they could buy and thus grow better crops and more crops. So 
I don't know, that was something I was not expecting. <laughs> but yeah, that is. A good illustration of um, the human level of these networks, the logistical aspects of these networks, and she's a source of information outside of official channels like uh, government weights and measures and timetables and things like that. So. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it is uh, really interesting uh, just to kind of get down into those details of what the day-to-day life was like for for these people. And in lo- lots of these stories, of course, this is true in a lot of history, but when you look at them, it it sounds like a hard life in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And then... There's another piece of this is being able to connect, I don't know, sitting on your porch and counting guano ships in the ocean to manifest destiny. I think it's kind of a new approach, a new angle to that expansion that is completely independent of this westward movement to, I don't know, California gold mines or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually can lead in uh, to talking a little bit about your sources. Of course, I imagine with the story you were just telling, perhaps you were looking at some of those letters. But in general, what kinds of sources were you using? And how are you able to make those connections in the archival record? Yeah. So oftentimes, I am using personal letters personal accounts. Occasionally, I do have a couple of government uh, sources. For example, the consulate in Rio de Janeiro does have some correspondence back to U.S. government officials. For the most part, honestly, it's them complaining about (laughs) trying to track down illegal trade and things like that. They're very curmudgeon generally speaking. (laughs) So there's a couple of those, but for the most part, they are private letters, journals, family papers. So what I ended up having to do in a lot of the archives, so I used um, archives in Virginia, Louisiana, Kentucky, as well as Brazil and Texas as well. I ended up tracking down family names because generally speaking, when you go to an archive, there isn't a collection that's called the Confederate Brazil collection. It's just not there. And so I had to do a lot of tracking down family name connections for the most part and looking through receipts, looking through letters, uh, ledgers, plantation records, and hoping, like scanning through, you know how it goes, scanning through (laughs) and hoping, oh, someone said Brazil. Okay, what are they saying about Brazil? What year is this? Et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. And so to find those family names, did you sort of have your – a few big names, the the major people, William Walker or whomever, and then look through their papers to find other names? Or how do you actually figure out whose who's, uh, pa- personal papers to look in? Yeah, so I'll use the example of the Scarborough Barnsley. So I knew that there were two brothers that went down to Brazil. And so I had Lucian and I had George, and their father's name was Lucian, and they had a kid named George. So all the Georges and Lucians. So following those individual names, by doing that, I could see, okay, they're writing to these other people. 
these people are writing to these other people. Oh, they created a company. Let's see what this company is up to. And so when I was able to find the company, I had the name of the company, then I could look through the company's records, and then I could see, okay, who's buying from this company, who's selling from this company, who sold them or rented to them a steamship. So then I could go down and follow the steamship routes, especially if they're talking about, oh, we stopped in this port, then potentially I could look for records that mention that port. Um, if the port comes up a bunch of times, then I knew that that was a regular stop. So then I could go back and say, okay, does this family have connections to this port? Things like that. So the research itself was kind of a network connecting different pieces as I tried to map out those networks too. Yeah. Yeah. You have a real detective story in some ways, tracing those, tracking those people down. Trying to. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, it, it uh, paid off. I think you have a, a great story here and really, um, really show how these relationships add up to something bigger, but also what that, what those individuals were doing on the ground and what their lives were like. Oh. Um, so we'd like to conclude by asking you what you're working on next. Yeah. Well, like many scholars at the moment, I am in need <laughs> of some new old sources. So that's a little up in the air at the moment. But that said, I think one piece of the dissertation that was not in the book really considered and studied the international slave trade. Now, I've mentioned it tangentially in these conversations about this book, but I think it is something that I can focus on in and of itself. And more specifically, I'm interested in the international slave trade through Texas. Because of course, in the 1830s, Texas is its own business, it's doing its own thing. And so I think the relationship between the Republic of Texas and the international slave trade through South America into the United States could be something that's really interesting to explore a little bit more and think about a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. And it is one of those, the, the slave trade is one of those things that, again, often for the more casual historian, we think of as being abolished and then kind of move on within the U.S. history perspective. Um, but this book highlights that that's not how everyone experienced it by any means. And it would be, it would be, I'd be interested to see what research you uh, come up with in the future. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And of course, uh, recording this in the midst of a pandemic, it's a tough time to be starting any sort of new project at the moment as a historian. But one day at a time, I think I am currently living in Texas. And so there are a couple of archives in the state that I think could be really productive to go visit later on. Well, that sounds great. Well, I hope when uh, that project comes to fruition that we'll have you back on and hear more about that one. <laughs> I would be happy to do so. All right. Well, thank you so much. I enjoy talking to you. Of course. Thanks for letting me talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>